This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All right, so welcome everybody. Thank you, welcome all our Torah Anytime's viewers, listeners, subscribers, and everything else that happens on Torah Anytime. Whether it's on the phone system, on the app, there's like so much stuff going on. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. So uh, just a, just a quick announcement that we are still raising money for the uh, the new camera, which by the way, this is being recorded on the new camera. Um, uh, so we do have a, a you know a, a little bit of of uh, fundraising that we still need to do. Whoever wants to um, join in this fundraising, you don't send the money to me. You send the money directly to Torah anytime. And you write in there, you know, Zitron camera or whatever it is. Or you don't have to write anything. You just send me a picture of it and I'm keeping track of how much um, we have to still uh, raise for it. But Baruch Hashem, we are getting closer to where we need to be. Okay, so that being said, tonight we are learning Le'ilun Ishmat Binyamin Re'el Ben Gershon Yeshaya, as well as Le'ilun Ishmat Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yecheskel Ben Avraham. Okay, so tonight, tonight we're going to see if we're going to be doing it in this, this in one class. Or we're going to split it into uh, two classes. So the topic is the Refua before the Hebrew topic is the Refua before uh, the Maka. Oh, and one more. There's a for we're learning tonight the Refua Shlema to Yehoshua Ben Esther. So, so. Again, so we're learning. To, so, so the topic tonight is the refua before the maka, and let's try to. Exp, uh, we're, we're, I would really, whenever we speak about a topic, what I like to do is try to get on the topic from all angles. So there's a very sometimes it's a very simple topic. It's something that's very straightforward, easy to understand, and uh, many other rabbis would just maybe just you know touch on it very little. I prefer to go on it from a full angle and sort of just try to encapsulate it with with the knowledge you know from from all different uh from all different angles and this way you you're really able to you know internalize the idea the concept so that's why you know we go through very very deep and different ideas and this one i want to really try to go also from all different angles a very very simple at least to understand concept of refuah before the makkah, but yet can be looked at in quite a different angle. So just try to, to understand the idea behind this. So there's a Gemara in Avaydazara. The Gemara in Avaydazara, uh, this is in page 40b, speaks about the um, Rabbi Huda Nasi. Rabbi Huda Nasi was the uh, the compiler of the Mishnah. He uh, took all the information and he compiled and he wrote the you know the Mishnah. And Rabbi Huda Nasi had severe intestinal pains. And what he needed, the healing aspect that he needed, was a certain apple cider. But the problem is that this apple cider was only produced by uh, people that were idolaters, people that served the Avodah Zarah. And the way to ensure that it was kosher, it would have to have been stored for 70 years. Now, the question, how are you going to find something? Right now, you want to go and you want to buy something that's stored for 21 years, right? You want to buy a liquor. Usually, these are the things that are stored for 21 years, other than people's money. But you have, you know, liquor. This is what's sold, stored. You want to buy something for 21 years, you're paying hundreds of dollars. You want to buy something that's for, you know, 30 years, you're paying thousands of dollars. Imagine you're looking for something 
that was stored for 70 years. 70 years, this is a lifespan in the olden days. This is what a full life, you know, would be. 70 years. Who goes and takes something and stores it for that long? Meaning that it was very difficult to find. And his attendants went and they searched all over to try to find this apple cider that was stored for 70 years that could be used to heal Rabbi Huda and Nasi. And it would still follow all the kosher, uh, you know, guidelines. And they searched and they searched. And they actually found something. They found the apple cider that was that was stored for 70 years. Rabbi Huda went and he drank it and uh, he was healed. And Rabbi Huda says, you know, to, to God, thank you, Hashem, you're so kind. You know, if you think about it for a second, you had this and you stored it for me, Hashem. You stored it for me for, for all these years. The person that put it in is very, very likely not the same person that's getting it to me right now. Meaning that it could be a father, a grandfather, you know, some business that was sold from one to another. Meaning that it, it, it transferred so many generations. And it was all for me. Literally, Bishvili Nivra Elam. The world was created for me. And the idea behind this is that 70 years... Before Rabbi Yehuda Nasi had the stomach ache, stomach intestinal pains, there was somebody who decided to store this apple cider for the next 70 years. So this, the, the refuah, the healing source of what the, the Rabbi Yehuda Nasi needed was already prepared for him well before like he needed it well before he was born, like so, so far before in advance that he even had a, a thought of needing it. And we see this also in uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right? The, the, the Yidin went into Mitzrayim and the, and the Torah tells us that there were 70 people that went into Mitzrayim. And this is in Bereshus in Genesis chapter 46 verse 27. There were 70 people that were went to Mitzrayim. But you go and you count and you add the numbers up that only equals 69. Where is the 70th? So the Gemara in Baba Babasar goes and tells us who the 70th person was. The 70th person was Yochaved who was born, meaning that her mother was pregnant with her, but she was born as they entered Mitzrayim. Meaning that Yochaved, who was Yochaved? Yochaved was Moshe Rabbeinu's mother. The savior of the Jewish people was born as the Jewish people went into Mitzrayim, went into what was later going to be their slavery. And this is all based off of the Gemara and Megillah, page 13b. That says, the Amr Reish Lakish, Reish Lakish says, Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu Maka Es Yisrael. God does not go and give an infliction, a suffering, a punishment to, to Bnei Yisrael. Ela imkein bare lahem refuat chila. Only if HaKadosh Baruch Hu first creates a healing, the salvation first. Meaning that the salvation comes before the affliction. We get afflicted, but the salvation has already existed beforehand. And that is the concept of the refuah before the makkah. Now the question is, why is this important to know? Maybe it's nice to know, maybe it's important to know. I would like to go through, when we finish this, I don't know if we're going to do one class or two class, seven different subcategories in this topic. So, I want to give you the seven categories, and then Bezat Hashem will go through it one by one. Why is, so the, the question really is, why is it important to know? Why does the Torah need to tell us that a Kaddish Baruch Hu creates the refuah, the salvation, the healing before the maka, before the affliction, before the burden, before the suffering, before the pain? So number one, the first thing that we learn from this is that it's planned. Meaning that this is a very planned, I don't want to call it an attack, because an attack is a very negative concept, but it's this is a planned 
attack. I don't know. That's the best word I can come out with. This is planned. What HaKadosh Baruch Hu did to you or to me or to anybody else, anything negative, positive, or anything in between, this was all planned. Meaning that, well, what, why is it important to know that it was planned? Once something is planned, that means that there has to be a reason for it. So when you go, when you plan something, some things happen spontaneous, right? Of course, there's nothing at random, but something happens that's a spontaneous thing. When you plan something, that means that there is a reason that you want to do it. So here's an example. Most people, they plan a vacation. Now, what is the reason that they plan the vacation? The reason behind it is that they want to go and enjoy themselves and have all the preparation done beforehand. So they know that they're going to come and they're going to go land in this airport. And they're going to be able to get from their airport to the hotel. And they're going to be able to do this activity at this day, this activity at that day. And they have everything, why there's a reason for everything that they're doing. They're planning it beforehand. Now granted, the fact that they're relaxing or whatever they're doing, there might not be the full reason that they comprehend. But once you plan something, that means that you have a reason for it. You want to, don't want to waste time. You want to relax. You want to go pray. You want, whatever it is that you want to do. So that's number one. Number two, the, 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 the benefit of knowing about this is that when somebody, God forbid, gets affected by something, it's so amazing to know that the cure is already created. And now, let me try to explain it this way. If somebody, somebody, here's, here's something that I've seen recently. There was somebody who was very wealthy that he decided that he was going to buy a poisonous snake. Now the problem with owning a, first of all, to all those snake lovers that, that own pet snake owners, I guess I could say, I don't know why you do it, but let's say you have a snake. For reasons I do not understand, I cannot comprehend, but you have a snake. But let's say that snake is poisonous. There is a chance that that snake will bite you. Again, of course, it's in a cage. Of course, it's not roaming your house and you don't take it on a walk with a leash. It's locked up, but there is a chance for it. There is a certain wealthy person that had a non-Jewish. He had a snake in his house. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe it was a king cobra, uh, meaning a poisonous snake that if the snake bites him, he has, I want to say 15 minutes to live. Not, not that long, right? And this is what he brings in his house as a pet. And, uh, uh, what, what he did was that just to be safe is near the cage, the glass enclosure where the snake is kept, he kept a antidote that if the snake bites him, he has 15 minutes to take that antidote and inject it to himself, otherwise he dies. So the fact that he has the cure, the antidote, he can enjoy the snake a lot more. You know, it's like, okay, fine, you know, like it, it, it's dangerous, but you know, like I got something that I have as a backup, meaning that even if, God forbid, he gets attacked by the snake and he gets bit by the snake, the attack, the affliction, the suffering that he goes to, at least emotionally in his mind, is not going to be as terrible because he knows that he has the antidote. As opposed to if he doesn't have the antidote and if he doesn't have the salvation, if he doesn't have what's going to save him, the attack, besides being physically painful, it's going to be emotionally and intellectually painful because he knows he's going to be struggling and be like, how am I going to save myself? So when the Torah tells us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates the Refua before the Makkah, that means that we that that anything that happens, we know that the antidote is right there. It's there. We have to access it, but it's there, and Akadish Baruch already created for us. That's number two. Number three, and why this is so important, is that sometimes 
we can see that our original discomfort can either be a minor discomfort or it could be a major discomfort, but it ultimately becomes our salvation. Meaning that we it's like a two-step process. That sometimes the the affliction that we get, the suffering that we get, the pain that we get, is only a minor pain, and that's really just to help us with the salvation that we need to get. A simple explanation is that you get a shot, you get an inoculation, right? So you get a shot, whether it's the flu shot, whether it's a, uh, you know, a vaccine, whether it's an allergy shot, whatever it is, you're getting a shot. The initial shot is painful, but what you're gaining from it is going to be the what's going to help you in the future. It's either going to prevent you from having getting certain diseases, or it's going to heal you, or it's pain medication. There's so many things that, that can come in that's initially painful, but the minor discomfort overcomes the major issues that are coming on later. Now, this initial discomfort can either come in minor or major, and it could be like, you know, exponentially greater later, and we'll soon see how. This is number three. Number four is that sometimes we don't even realize the suffering, meaning we don't even realize the discomfort. We don't even realize the maka, and we'll explain that as well. Number five is that the salvation can be years away. Sometimes, you know, like you, <laughs> the best example that I could give is when someone misses a flight. And, uh, you know, it's very frustrating to miss a flight. There's so much preparation and planning, and then you got to go, and you got to run to the airport, you got to go through all security. And after all that, you miss a flight. What initially comes up and be like, well, it must be that the plane is going to explode. You know, like, because why else would I miss the flight? But let's say the plane doesn't explode, and let's hope that it does not explode we should still know that that was for our benefit. Maybe we won't see that until years in the future. Maybe until 120. But the salvation is there. The suffering that we got, the salvation is there somewhere. But we might not see it until years in the future. Number six is that when someone gets afflicted, pained, hurt by somebody else, it's usually, not always, but it's usually... It's there's an emotional thing, meaning if someone hurts you, harms you, and I'm saying intentionally, not unintentionally. It's usually like you know, either it's anger, it's uh, you know, frustration. You know, there's something over there. There's the spirit of frustration. There's something that's going on in the other person that's causing you to get that uh, suffering from this person. But once you know that this person may be causing you a suffering, but there is already a salvation in place, then the suffering is not so bad. The suffering is not so bad. And the best example that I could give you is the previous example with the shot, meaning that you, the doctor is giving you the shot. Now, we're intellectual people. We're able to understand that the doctor is giving us a shot. We know that's for our benefit. We know that we're going to gain from it. So it doesn't bother us so much. But imagine it wasn't a doctor. Imagine it was a random guy in the street just go and, you know, throw a dart that's with a very small bezel right into your arm. And then, like, and then he injects it. He's like, what are you doing? It's so painful. What are you doing? And then he says, oh, no, I just gave you the flu shot. First of all, definitely check yourself into a doctor and get yourself checked out if that does happen. But then, of course, that's going to be like, wait a minute. Like, you know, like, you don't feel comfortable with that. You don't know what this guy is. You don't know what he injected you. There's so many issues that are coming up. But if you know it's a doctor, you know that it's out there for your benefit, then when he does something for you, it doesn't hurt as much. So to speak, if let's say you have... Uh, you know, a child that the mother wants to give the child medicine. And, you know, many times the medicine is uh, bitter. And the mother is trying to go 
and it's trying is is trying to go and to convince this child to take this medicine. And this child is saying, "No, I don't want this medicine. You're a bad mommy. Why are you doing this to me?" You know, like as a child is being a you know a, you know a, a child. The mother will be like, "No, it's for your benefit." And in fact, if the mother wouldn't give you if the mother wouldn't give you the the medication, that wouldn't that would make her a bad mother. But the fact that she is giving you the medicine, that is the fact that that makes makes her a good mother. So Meaning that sometimes when we see that it's coming from a loving place, we're able to deal with it in a much easier fashion. As opposed to if it's coming from like a random thing. And many times when we go into our life, we don't, we don't put those two and two connect, we don't connect those dots that it's coming from Akadosh Baruch Hu. And once it's coming from Akadosh Baruch Hu, there is a refuah already created before the market. And if we're able to make that connection, everything that we're dealing with makes it all that easier to deal with. And this really is like, you know, when, when, Bad things happen, you know. We we should know that Kol Man Da Avud Rachman on top of it. Everything that Hakadosh Baruch Hu Hakadosh Baruch Hu created for the for for our benefit. But all this information that I'm giving you right now, it's a preliminary information to be able to get to that. You have to know that it came from God. You have to know that God loves you. You have to know that God is doing for the best. And not only that, you have to know that there is a salvation already waiting for you. That's number six. And the final thing is number seven. Accessing that salvation, uh, meaning tapping into, and how do we get into that salvation? So let's go through this, uh, you know, one by one. Okay, so the first one that it's planned, right? Before, before Maka, that it's planned in uh, Shanghai in 1927. Uh, there was a Sephardic Jew, Shanghai, China, that is, and it was a Sephardic Jew by the name of Silas Hardon. And he was childless and he, you know, he was a successful businessman and he started giving money to Chinese charities. One night his father comes to him in a dream and he says, what are you doing? He says, why are you giving money to the Chinese charities? He says, what about your own people? Like, what about the Jewish people? They, they, you know, they need money also. So he wakes up and he ignores it. But the dream kept on repeating itself. It kept on reoccurring. Until finally he went to the Chacham, he went to the rabbi. And he says, Rabbi, what am I supposed to do? So the rabbi said, build a beautiful synagogue in the center of Shanghai. And the rabbi says, it could, you know, it should be big enough that it can, could, you know, could hold hundreds of seats. And it should have a kitchen, a dining room. Like build an edifice for, for God. And uh, he followed the rabbi's advice, and he built this beautiful shul right in the middle of, of Shanghai, and he called it Bet Aaron, in memory of his father, Aaron. The problem was, is that how many Jews are in Shanghai? <laughs> how many Jews are sitting there in the center of China? A few years go by, and uh, this Mr. Hadun, he passes away. And uh, the, at this point, there's this beautiful shul in the middle of Shanghai that there's barely even a minion in it. And I, I want to just tell you, like, I've been to shuls when, you know, like like in places in Europe, you see these beautiful shuls. Granted, it was built when there was, you know, many Jews living there. But there's beautiful, huge shuls where there's barely a minion. The Jews are no longer there. Look at the shul. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. But it's empty. There's no one there. And this shul in Shanghai, all with all its beauty and glory, there was no one showing up. There was no one there. There was no Jews in Shanghai. Eight years later, it was 1939, and there was a small Polish town, you know, of Mir. And uh, this came under the Nazi rule, and the students had to run away. 
and they ran to a place near there in Vilna, in Lithuania. And at that time, the uh, Japan had a diplomatic presence by, by somebody by the name of Sugihara that was in um, in Lithuania. And what what Mr. Sugihara was doing, it was he was violating at all like all Japanese policy. But he was working nonstop, and he was granting, you know, these transit visas to all these Jews. He saw what was going on. The Holocaust was going on. The Nazis were murdering Jews left and right and putting them in concentration camps, in, you know, labor camps. And he was, he made it his mission to try to get as many Jews as he can out of, out of Europe, out of the, out of where, where the Nazi rule was. And he was signing off on thousands of visas, and included in these visas was the Mir Yeshiva. And the Mir Yeshiva was able to take these visas, and they were able to cross Russia through, they went through the Trans-Siberian Railway, and they ended up in Japan in 1943. And uh, they couldn't stay in Japan, so they ended up being deported to a Jewish ghetto in Shanghai, China. Now, there was a whole yeshiva of you know, boys that were sitting over there, they were homeless, they didn't have anywhere to go, they were penniless, they needed a place to live, and, and where, where were they going to go? The whole ship was traveling together. So where could they find, in the middle of China, you know, in 1943, where are they going to find? And lo and behold, what did they find? They discovered this magnificent shul that was built 16 years prior, and it practically remained unused. It was just sitting there and was just like waiting. It had a dining room. It had all this. It had everything ready, but it was nothing there. And that's where the Mir Yeshiva ended up staying in Shanghai. And when I was in the Mir Yeshiva, you had, you know, people over there that I remembered while they were there. The Rosh Yeshiva was there back in Shanghai. They were, you know, they remembered during their time in, in, you know, in China learning over there. And you look at what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did 16 years prior to the need of this shul, HaKadosh Baruch Hu knew that there was going to come a Holocaust. He knew the not, he knew what there was going to be with the Nazis. He knew that the, you know, there was going to be a Japanese diplomatic that's going to go against the rule. He's, he's going to go and try to get, and they're going to end up in Shanghai. But where are they going to go in Shanghai? So HaKadosh Baruch Hu set everything up that the, the salvation was already 16 years before any issue ever came up. This is what it means when everything is planned. You look at it, how you had a wealthy guy in China. He was giving donations. God sent it through a message to him through his father. He says, why don't you do something? And a rabbi said, make a shul. Why? Why would you make a shul? If you were right now dropped off in somewhere, I don't know. And I would, I want to say somewhere where there's no Chabad because now people, you know, travel somewhere far off in a faraway land where nobody travels over there. No one's, in, you know, interested in being there. There's no Jews over there. And you want to donate money. So what would you do? Okay, you donate to Kirov, you could donate to Torah, you donate to Eretz Israel. Would you say go and build a shul right here when there's no Jews around? Why? That seems like it's almost like backwards. Why would you do it? Things, when, when things like don't make sense that they're happening, and then they happen, and then you look back, you'd be like, wait a minute. Like, this is like a very, very obvious that Akadish Barhu was the puppet master here, and it was pulling all the strings exactly where it needed to be. Going on to number two, that was number one, that everything is planned. Very important concept to know in your life that everything that happens is planned. Number two. Number two, we said that the cure was already created. Rabbi El-Malach Biederman brings a story 
that there was a person that lived in Monroe, and he was a member of Atzal over there. And he decided one day that he wants to go and be at Yeshaya of Karistin. He wanted to be by the yurt, by the yurt side, by his caver in Europe, in Hungary, in Budapest. And uh, he, this is something that he's never done before. It's not like he goes every year, but some something popped into his head and he wanted to do it. And he was searching up, you know, tickets and uh, he saw that the only ticket to Hungary was leaving from the Yurtzeit himself, meaning that he would have to leave New York from the same day that the Yurtzeit was, and he would have to fly to Hungary again, you know, the, the, because of the, clock, the the time switch. He was able to make it, but only if everything went smoothly. Meaning he would able, he would book, he would book the ticket, he would fly in the only flight that he would be able to, he would land on the day of the Yurtzeit, and if everything went smoothly, he would be able to get to the caver, to the grave, by the end, before the end of the day. So, he books his ticket. And after he books his ticket, he orders a car, you know, it's very hard to drive over there and figure everything out, so he orders a driver, he orders a car, that he should be able to pick him up by the airport and take him straight to the grave. Everything is planned. He lands in Hungary, and he starts looking for the driver, and he can't find the driver. He's trying to call. Nothing. It's out. It took him a full hour until he located. And every minute is precious over here. You got to make it before Shkia to be able to daven by the yurtzeit. That's what he was. That's all he flew for. And finally, after a full hour, he was able to locate the driver. When he got on, when they got on the road, they were driving. And a short while later, the, the, the driver had to make a, a short stop because there was a car crash that took place right in front of their car. And the, the driver, you know, slams on the brakes. They come to a screeching halt. The driver jumps, you know, out. Look what's happening. Meanwhile, this person is sitting in the back seat. This Jew- Jewish person from Monroe, he's an Atzala. He jumps out also. He's like, what's going on? He looks at the car accident and he sees inside the people that were in a car accident were two Jewish people. And he runs over to them, and because of his experience in Atala, he takes them out of the car, and they were unconscious. They, you know, they, they didn't have a heartbeat. They didn't. They they, they were com- completely gone at that point. And he started, you know, performing CPR. And the problem was there was two of them. So what he was going to do? So he was alternating. He was doing CPR on one, and then he was jumping on the other. And everybody else was standing there inside. No one knew what to do. He was the only one experienced to know what to do in this situation. And he's jumping in, doing compressions, say, you know, pushing on the chest over here. You know, inhaling some air in this one, jumping to the other one. He's going back and forth, back and forth. And it did it for 15 minutes. 15 minutes until the ambulance arrived. Finally, the ambulance arrived. They took both of these young men and they brought them, uh, you know, to the hospital. And because of this person's CPR experience, and as I tell he was able to save these two Jewish young men. And look at what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent this man. This head, you know, a week prior, let me travel 4,000 miles to go to a caver that I've never went before on the yard side and then only find a ticket that was barely gonna make it, but let me try. And then he got delayed in the airport because he had to be exactly where he needed to be. He needed to be the hour late because he needed to be right behind this car that was supposed to get into an accident. Now let's try to break this down a little bit. So how can this Baruch Hu save these two people? We could easily ask, so why get them in an accident in the first place? Why send this guy all the way from Monroe to save them? Let them just not get into an accident. They got saved at that. They have to just go straight. And the answer is, they needed to get into an accident. For whatever reason, how can this Baruch Hu decided that they needed to have this happen? 
But then you can ask, but it could have been the person that saved them could have been a different Hatzalah member. You think there was no, no, oh, there's the only Hatzalah member that flies? There could have been a guy that goes every single year. And every single year, this guy travels to Rabshayla's caver, and he was the one who had experience, and he could have done exactly the same thing that this person did it. But no, Akadosh Baruch Hu said, no, it's going to be this person that never went before. He's going to travel 4,000 miles, be delayed to be the one to save them. Why? Because not only does Akadosh Baruch Hu plan the affliction, Akadosh Baruch Hu also planned the salvation. But not only does Akadosh Baruch Hu plan the salvation, he also plans where that salvation is going to come from. Who is that salvation going to come from? From which person? It has to be this guy. This guy was the messenger for whatever reasons to save these two young men's life. And the next time that something happens, we have to realize that the salvation is not only already in place, but the messenger is already in place. Meaning that this takes it a step level that we just we were discussing previously. Meaning that we just said everything is planned, everything's from the Shabbat creates the salvation before the the you know the the Maka, before the affliction. But not only that, it's planned to such a detail that the way that the salvation is going to come, it's going to be from a specific person. And we can attest to that in our own lives. How many times did we go and we had an issue and we speak to this, whether it's medical, whether it's emotional, whatever it is, parnas, whatever it is, and we speak to so many different people to try to get our salvation. And then finally, one person happens to help us, you know, like, and it's usually like a, like something that was never even planned. It was like, oh, I happened to see him. And I happened to say this and I happened to say that. And he happened to recommend me to this doctor. And it's sort of like things that kind of like just like happen, what we think, and it ends up with our salvation. And the answer is, and the reason for that is, is because there is there is a messenger that is supposed to take you out of that. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to set it up to, that you will meet with that messenger when it's appropriate at the right time. You know, and sometimes these salvation, they come in a uh, um, what seems to be useless information. So to explain, there was a, a man, this is Rabbi David Asher says a story, there was a man that told him that he was uh, learning at night, he lives in Miami, he was learning at night with a neurologist. And uh, the week prior to the story happening, he said this neurologist's daughter suffered a brain aneurysm. Baruch Hashem, she was, she's healthy, she's, you know, she made it. And this neurologist was explaining to his chavrusa, to his study partner, the symptoms of a brain aneurysm. And he was explain. He was, you know, he was a neurologist, so he was explaining it in like complex medical terminology. Until finally, the guy uh, says, he says, "Listen, just, just, you know, the chavrus is like, I'm not a doctor. Just tell to me in plain English. You know, like sometimes you're talking to somebody, whether it's in the computer world or whether it's in the, uh, you know, medical world, and you're like, okay, like now." You don't want to say dumb it down for me because you don't want to say I'm dumb. You know, I don't understand. Can you say it in very simple second grade level? But you want to say like, what do people say? Tell me in plain English. So he tells them in plain English. He says, what if, if somebody feels that they're having the worst headache that they've ever had in their life, that can be a sign of a brain aneurysm. So he says, oh, wow. So I never knew that. It's good to know. A short while later, this man flies to New Jersey, from Miami to New Jersey, and he's attending a family bar mitzvah. And at the Shabbos meal, he's sitting by his in-laws, and at the end of the meal, his brother-in-law was not in the room. So he goes and says, you know, where's uh, where's the, you know, he says, where's my brother-in-law? And he says, oh, you know, he wasn't feeling well, he went to lay down. 
and in the meantime, you know, they're expecting him to return slowly, but it's been quite some time, and the brother-in-law still didn't return. So, uh, you know, this man from Miami decided, you know, let me go and check him out, see, see if everything is okay. So he goes over to this uh, to his brother-in-law and says, you know, what's up? How are you feeling? And he says, you know, I, I really don't, you know, feel well, you know, like, you know, I have a headache, like, you know, so, so this, you know, my head is hurting me. So, um, this man goes, and for some reason he says, can you describe to me the pain? For reasons, he's not a doctor. Why did he say that? Who knows? But he just happened to say, can you describe to me the pain? And, uh, you know, his brother-in-law is like, he's like, this is like the worst headache I've ever had in my life. And that all of a sudden, like, you know, like a light bulb, like ding, 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 ding. He's like, wait, what? Is it the worst headache? And he says, a week ago, I heard about, you know, like, and he goes and he picks up the phone and he calls Atala and his family's like, what are you doing? And he's like, he has a headache. He's the worst. Yeah, I'm calling Atala and everyone's like, it's a headache, you know, relax. Like, what's the big deal? It's a headache. He's like, no, 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 Atala needs to come. And he calls Atala, people, the family, the person. He's like, we don't need it. And he says, we need Atala. The paramedics come down. And they're discussing, you know, what's going on. And the family's like, you called Hatzalah for a headache mm-hmm. on Shabbos? That's what you, that's what you called? And, um, he goes and, um, you know, he says, you know, you just word as he's talking, as he's talking to the paramedics, as he's talking to the family, all of a sudden his brother-in-law became paralyzed in half his body. The paramedics saw this, they quickly give him oxygen, they did whatever they could to help, and they quickly rushed him to the hospital. And there, he took a he took a turn for the worse, and he had to be taken to, by a helicopter to another hospital. And uh, eventually, they were able to you know stabilize his condition. And later, the Hatzala volunteer told this person, he says, you know, if the paramedics were not there at the time that this happened, he would not have survived. You think about this, like what just happened? Like like break down that story for just a minute. This person had an information that was, at the point that he received it, was pure useless information. He was like the most, you know, difficult, annoying, painful headache he's ever had in his life. He's like, okay, he just like registered in the back of his brain. Not a week goes by, and he's, you know, in New York, and the same information comes up, that the worst headache, and he calls out Salah against everyone from what the family says, and he ends up saving this person's life. Like, Hakadosh Baruch Hu set it up that he was the Chavrusa would go, like, why would the Chavrusa even tell? There's so many things that we could break it down, but we don't have the time to. But like, you know, the fact that this Chavrusa, you know, that, that he was a neurologist. The fact that he was able to explain it in its simple English as only a doctor would be able to. The fact that he was by this location, the fact that by his brother-in-law, meaning the fact that he went to visit and the fact that the brother-in-law said it, there's like so many steps that had to come into place only to get to the point of where he would be saved because of the information that he was received privacy. Because the salvation came already. This Baruch said, in a week's time, you're going to need to know this because we need to save this person. He needs to go through something. But we're going to save him. How are we going to save How things went one after another is so comforting to know. Now, speaking about headaches, there was a rabbi that... Um, that had was on was on an airplane, and he had also a, a splitting headache, and uh, you know he gets this you know often, and he goes over to the flight attendant and says, "Excuse me, do you have any ibuprofen, yeah, like Motrin, you know, like like something that has ibuprofen in there, Advil?" And uh, the flight attendant says, "You know, I'm sorry, we don't have ibuprofen, 
but we happen to have aspirin. And the rabbi's like, you know, I really need ibuprofen. Ibuprofen is what usually helps me. Well, everybody has their own medication, whether it's ibuprofen, acetaminophen, you know, different thing, or aspirin. Um, and for this particular rabbi, he needed ibuprofen. That's what helps him. So he goes to um, the flight attendant and says, listen, if all you have is just aspirin, give me the aspirin. I'll, I'll, I'll take the aspirin. And, you know, she, he takes the aspirin and he takes a large dose. He, has a, he says, I need a large dose so he be able to, you know, he needs what he knows what he needs. And he takes this large dose of, uh, you know, aspirin. A few hours go by and uh, um, they land and um, he, get, he starts feeling this numb feeling. And he, you know, he rushes over to the, you know, to the doctor and, uh, you know, he explains the symptoms and the doctor hears the symptoms and he says, you know, like you're, you, you know, you, you had a stroke. That's why you're numb. And the guy's like, what? He's like, you know, like stroke, that major thing. He's like, no, I didn't, I wouldn't have. He's like, no, you had a stroke. And, but, but I don't, and the doctor ran some tests and says, you really should have been a lot worse than you had. Have you take any medication against a stroke? And the guy's like, no, you know, Baruch Shem, I never had a stroke before in my life. Why would I take any medication? He says, you didn't take anything, you know, like blood thinner. Like, you didn't take anything. And the guy's thinking, he says, you know, I was on a plane not too long ago, you know, and I, I took, you know, a high, you know, dose of aspirin. But that was the last medication I took. Nothing for the stroke. And the doctor's like, no, 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 that, that was it. He says, the aspirin, he says, that prevented the tremendous amount of difficulties that you would have had from this stroke. If you wouldn't have taken this aspirin, this aspirin literally saved your life. You would have not have lasted if you didn't take this aspirin that, you know, the, from based off the, the you know, the, the blood thinning, all the characteristics of the aspirin, ibuprofen wouldn't have helped him. Tylenol wouldn't have helped him. The only thing that would have helped him was aspirin. That was the only thing that could have, that could have helped him. Meaning that if he was not on an airplane, he was, on, he would have just went, found some ibuprofen, taken it. He was on an airplane. He was locked to whatever medication they had. All they had was aspirin. He had a debilitating headache. Didn't have to have the headache. I could just brother send them a little minor headache. But I could just brother send them. And the only later that it ended up happening that he was ended up the aspirin, the headache, was for his benefit. The fact that there was no ibuprofen was for his benefit. The fact that he took aspirin was for his benefit. And that ended up saving his life. You know, and that's just a minor, a minor, a minor issue. You could have, you know, major issues. You know, like the, you know, it's getting a little bit late, so maybe we'll, we'll, we'll end it a little bit early. Let's, let's touch upon like a major, um, a major discomfort. There was a person who had a shidduch. And uh, the shidduch, you know, he was a top bacher, like like a top single guy. Like everything was going for him. And he ended up marrying into family, you know, like a, a very wealthy, very famous family. It looked like it was like a great shidduch. The problem was it was a total mismatch. Like, uh, you know, like it, it just didn't work out from the get-go, from the beginning. And a very short while later, they got divorced. And uh, after he was divorced, he had a heart. When he was single, he was a top guy. Everything was going for him, but now, you know, he's divorced. He came in with a little bit of extra baggage, and he had a very difficult time, you know, getting remarried. 
And he was suggested this uh, more of a simple girl, not, you know, the girls that he was dating, you know, in a high caliber that he was. And uh, he started dating the simple girl and it ended up working out like really well. They really connected. They appreciated each other. They understood each other. And one thing led to another and they ended up getting married. And he was telling over this to the rabbi, to his rabbi. And he says, you know, looking back, he says, the wife that I got, it was worth and this is him saying it. Nobody else can say it other than him. It was worth all the pain and the suffering. Divorce is very difficult. He says it was worth all the pain, the suffering, the embarrassment of his divorce just to get to the wife that he has now. And he tells us to the rabbi, he says, you know, when I first started dating, I would have never gone out with my wife right now. I was biased. I had ego. I, you know, I, thought I would have never even looked at her. He says, but now that I went through what I went through, I... You know, this is what I was left with, and this is what I thought, and I thought I was settling, I thought I was going down, but little did I know that I was marrying so much higher than I ever thought I had. The difficulty that he went through, the divorce, the embarrassment, the pain, the suffering that he went through, was only for the salvation that came only much later, through so much difficulty, and he himself attested to it, that it was all worth it. Now, I can tell you, I, I've known, you know, plenty of people that have had a very, very picky, you know, onset of their dating. And later they worked on themselves and they were able to bring it down and then they were able to go and find their bashar. They were able to find their soulmate. But it doesn't always, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes it has to go through difficulties. And once it goes through difficulties, that's when they're able to sometimes come out with that salvation because of the difficulties that they went through. So being that it's a little bit late, let's, we're going to break this class into two. But let's do a very, very quick recap. And then we'll open up to any questions. We went through three three things. Three out of the seven things that, that we wanted to touch on. Number one, we said that it's planned. The importance of knowing that things that happen in your life, it's planned, it's orchestrated from up above, means that there was a reason for it. And while we may not understand the reason... We may not see the reason, but down the line, we're going to see it. Down the line, we're going to see of why there had to be a wealthy businessman in China to build a shul that only could be benefit the Mir Yeshiva 16 years in the future. Everything has a plan. Everything has a purpose, even if we don't understand it. The second thing that we mentioned is that the cure was already created before the affliction, before the suffering. Meaning that no matter where we're holding and what our issue is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu already created the cure. The antidote is right there. And once we know that the antidote is right there, we may not have grasped it yet. We may not have tapped into it yet. But once we know that it's there, we're able to deal with that difficulty just a little bit easier. The more that you contemplate this, the easier that it's going to be. And the final thing that we mentioned is that sometimes it could be a minor issue or it could be a major issue. But down the line, we see the salvation that comes on. It could be a very, uh, you know, it could be a very, very minor thing such as a headache and we can't get the right medication. And that later is on saves us. Or it could be a major thing like a divorce and that later saves on. So when we start off thinking and processing this information, 
processing the fact that HaKadosh Baruch has a plan, that everything was already created beforehand, any difficulty that we arise in. And by the way, it's not just the difficulty, it's also the good. The good is also planned. The good is also for our benefit. With that, we'll be able to deal with our life in so much of an easier, happier, and more emotionally stable focus. A more, a more, or better yet, uh, of an angle that we look at things. And we're able to deal with things, both positive and the negative, knowing, knowing where the source came from. And while we didn't finish everything that we want to, Bezat Hashem will continue the next time, but right now we will open to, uh, to any questions. Okay, first question that we have here is, why do we need to go through so much pain? Why, uh, here, why can't we just have a perfect world? Why can't we be created in Olam Haba? There doesn't have to be a concept of having earn and earning be greater than just a gift. Why does God have to be in pain and us Okay, this is a great question. This is a question that's not only so loaded with with like information and, and like understanding of what we have to like tap into, but I'm going to try to give a brief overview on it. So, so why do we have to go through pain? Really, we could break this down into like a few different classes. Just this question, the class in itself, could be like, why do we have to go through pain? Like, why why it's a suffering? And in fact, we did speak about this, you know, before in different times, in different series. But the reason why we have to go through pain and suffering is not because HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to go through pain and suffering, but rather because it's for our benefit. So let's try to explain it like this. So we need to get, let's use the example that we gave before with an injection. We need to get an injection. The question is, why is it that we have to get an injection to get the inoculation, to get the medicine, why do we need to get it an injection? Why not create? And in fact, they've tried creating this, and, and to some extent, they've done it. Let's say a flu shot through a nasal spray. Instead of getting shot, just you know, a little or a pill, pop a pill, you get this stuff, you know, in there. So through medicine, right? There is better if you get certain things subcutaneous or intramuscular, meaning that when you're putting it in your mouth, the way that your medicine is getting, you know, absorbed into your body, it's through your stomach, and then it gets absorbed and eventually goes to your bloodstream. There's different ways. That's through the that's through a medication through orally. But if you take it through subcutaneous, that goes through your fat. If you put it intramuscular, that goes into your muscle, and it and it. You know, it lasts differently. It has, a, a, there's different benefits and, and there are some cons also. There's different benefits of putting it one way or another. But that's why sometimes we need to go through some pain because we, that pain is where that benefit is going to be. Meaning the benefit of the shot outweighs the benefit that if we would just have a pill. Meaning they won't last as long. We will, there's so many other, th- other, other things that, that come into play. So sometimes we have to go through pain for our benefit that we not, cannot even begin to understand it. Now you could say, well, God created the world. God created everything. Let God create it that we don't need to go through the pain. And in fact, God did create it that way, that we don't need to go through the pain to a certain extent, right? You know, we know that there's a sin of Adam and Chava, that we have to go through a certain pain. But really, God created But the fact that we have to go through pain is not that something on HaKadosh Baruch Hu, It's something on us. If we have to go through some sort of pain, it's a reason that we have to do it. It's, it's our fault. We tend to think, okay, God, why are you doing this to me? But really, what happened was that we got ourselves into a bind. And now, this Baruch has to get us out of that bind. In order to get us out of that bind, we go through that pain. So to explain it in a, in a brief way, 
if someone doesn't have Eirah, they do a sin. So now they, they put themselves in a bind. But how are they going to get out of that? Now because Brahma says, I have to get you out of that. You're in a sin. What happens when you sin is that you encapsulate yourself. You sort of put yourself a klipa, a shell of impurity. Now God says, I need to get remove that impurity. You can't, you can't have impurity in a pure holy soul. So how am I going to remove that impurity? Through different things. Maybe through pain. Maybe through suffering. But what, what all that is is just that medicine that may be bitter, may be difficult, may pinch a little bit, but that's to give us that medicine that comes in. So meaning it's all on us. Okay, so that's a brief, I, I know I didn't touch on everything, but uh, you know I do want to get through all, uh, it's, a, it's a really loaded, I love the question, it's such a great question, because you, you followed up with a great aspect of like, why does God have to be in pain also? Because when we're in pain, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in pain. And in fact, we need to capitalize on that. That's maybe that's not the right word to use. But when we daven for our for our healing, for our salvation, we should say, "Hakadosh Baruch not only for us, you're also in pain. So save us for us, for for you. Save us that the Shechina doesn't have to go in pain." But again, that's a, that's that's something I wanted to just you know try to answer it in brief. But really, it's it's something for a whole class. Next question: Should I take everything as a sign? Great question. The fact that I choose to join this Zoom and you chose this topic, does that mean anything? Okay, so let's start with this latter. For sure. The fact that you came and you, you know, you, you listen to this topic and if you've never been here before and this is the first time that you're, uh, you're joining. And by the way, for anybody who is a first, first time listener or on Torah Anytime listening, um, you should know that if you do want to join our women's only Thursday night class, you can reach out to me. We have a WhatsApp, uh, um, group that all the information is open to anyone that wants, any woman that wants to, uh, to join. Um, it's free and, you know, the more the merrier. But the fact that going back to your, point, oh, if you want to reach out to me to join in that, it's Rabbi Zitron at TorahAnytime.com if you want to uh, reach out to me and I can uh, add you to that group. So now, take let, let's go to the to the first part of that question. Should I take everything as a sign? So we have to be very careful on this because sometimes we read too much into the signs and we tend to read wrong. And I, I could give you so many examples on this. Um, you, you have somebody that's dating and the guy shows up late, or the guy doesn't open up the door, or the guy doesn't do this, and be like, okay, so the guy doesn't open up the door, that means that he is doesn't have manners. The fact that he showed up late, that it means that he's not punctual. So it must be that he does not polite. It must be that he's not he's not going to be a good father. And we go through so many different things that we try to read the signs, and I have to tell you that many times I speak to people, and they tell me the signs that they saw, I could show them almost immediately that they read the situation wrong. So... At one point, you have to be very careful. You're you're reading, you know, you you know, like we could interpret signs wrong. But at, this, at the same point in time, yes, everything that happens, it is a sign. We have to open up our eyes, but we have to utilize it, and we have to have that balance of knowing, okay, there's a sign over here, but now how do I interpret that? So it's also very important, and it comes very beneficial this time. You speak to your rabbi, your rabbits, and your mentor. Be like, okay, listen, this is what happened. What do you think about this? Should I look into this? Should I not look into this? Is this a sign? Is this my own deficiency? Is this somebody else? So again, it all depends on the circumstance and what the issue was. But everything is definitely a sign, and everything we definitely should look into, but the question is how to look into that. And that's where you break it down. If you do it yourself, you do it through asking somebody else. Next question. Um, how can a person continue to serve Hashem while they're angry with Him? Ooh, good question. How could you serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu when you're angry? First of all, if you're angry at HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's a great thing, in a sense. Not 
perfectly. But when you're angry, at, that means first of all that you believe in Hashem. Because if you don't believe in Hashem, you wouldn't be angry at Him. Why would I anger? Well, you know. So how do you how do you connect Hakadosh Baruch Hu if you're angry? So anger is an emotion. Anger is not something that's on the next person, but rather it's on me. Meaning that if you're angry at your spouse, your neighbor, your friend, your boss, your daughter, whatever it is, that's not a chisarin in the other person. That's a chisarin in you. Meaning anger is an internal emotion. So it's not about like what HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs to do differently or what my spouse needs to do differently, but rather it's what I need to do differently. So if you're angry at HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's not about trying to figure out some, the, the answer is not in like from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God's angle, but rather it's from your angle. Like, why am I angry and how do I work on this? We should never obviously be angry, but, you know, sometimes, you know, emotions overcome us. So we have to break it down and realize why we're angry and how do we dissolve that? Uh, sometimes you're not going to be able to dissolve it, you know, initially. You're not going to be able to dissolve it. So then the if you are able to, that's the path that you need to go. But if you can't dissolve it for whatever reason, you should still serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but you should go a little bit of a roundabout way. Now, what, when, and where, and how, it all depends on what the reason that you're angry. So I can't give a blanket thing, but if you want, you can reach out to me privately, and we'll try to, you know, go through it and see, like, why you're angry, what's the issue, can we attack it straight on, remove the anger, and then you can connect, or is it something too strong that we can't just remove it yet, and we have to go a little bit of a roundabout, and how we're going to do that. Thank you for the kind words about liking this year, and I appreciate that. Okay, next question. Is it... Is reading signs based on your level of emuna? Like last week, the Rabbi mentioned that Rabbi Akiva didn't light a fire lamp because he understood Hashem took it out. It was for a reason. To what extent should we look at signs? So whenever you're looking at signs, and generally, if you're really analyzing signs, I would strongly, strongly recommend that you speak to a Rav, a mentor, a Rabbitson, somebody that you could help. Because when we're reading signs, we could... Ooh, I've I've spoken to people that they were so off, so so off. They, you know, like so so. You should look at signs, but you have to be careful, especially when you go deep, to know how to read it, and it might be beneficial, and especially for big things, small things. Okay, fine. You say Hakadosh Baruch That's you know, stick with that. But big things, you have to go and you have to speak to to a rav, a mentor, a rabbit, and something like that. Okay, <laughs> thank you for for the kind words. Um, Okay. Yes, of course. Uh, you know, yeah, I appreciate the. You know, the. Um, uh, there was a message that came in thanking for davening in Eretz Yisrael. I have to say that was unbelievable that we, you guys, were able to come in with so many names at such a short period. Really, it's all it's all thanks to Sapir uh, for for putting it all together. But uh, yeah, like I said last week, I was there at Eretz Yisrael, different places for like fifteen twenty. I was there with, sometimes with my brother, and, I, and I'm like sitting on my phone, I'm like going through all the names and going over there, and I'm like, no, 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 I need, I need, I need some more, some more time. So. By I'm happy to be able to to daven for our fellow Yidin. Okay, okay. Uh, Here we go. Hold on a second. We have one last question. And then we'll close it off. Around a year ago, I was going through a challenge in my life. My father had sent me a video explaining how and when you should thank Hashem every day. It was wonderful, but the true test is thanking Hashem for the bad. My father passed away a few weeks ago. I'm so sorry to hear that. 
And I was looking through videos and found this. It was worth every part of the challenge I was having a year ago to have this chizik right now. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, and your father's neshama should have an aliyah. And I'm assuming that's the n- name that you, um, you know, put in. So in, in the beginning of the class. So really the, the neshama of Binyamin Rael ben Gershon Yeshaya should have a, a, a aliyah in his neshama. And um, uh, he should be a melitz yesha to your entire family. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.